We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, it's Lindsay Rhodes and I've got a new podcast, The NFL Road Show. Fun and kind of nerdy conversation about the NFL every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've got some amazing guests that are joining me. I'll be breaking the huddle with the top stories, previewing games. We'll get you set for the weekend fantasy with our Fantasy Friday episodes, and we'll answer some of your questions as well. So subscribe to the NFL Roadshow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Aikman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve oh! Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, close to the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Brian Burns to the house! This one is picked again. Intercepted by Boston. Bridgewater, throw into the end zone, touchdown! Samuel still on his feet, inside the five, to the end zone, touchdown! What a play! And it is caught for the touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. He pounded on three. One, two, three. He pounded. Welcome to another episode of The Roar, brought to you by Blue Wire. And I am excited to welcome back my co-host, John Ellis. John, how are you? Hey, everybody. Hey, Billy. How you doing, man? Welcome uh, welcome back to, to the old COVID boy here. This has been a, uh, an interesting <laughs> week. Uh, the, the first couple days were, were rotten, uh, and the rest of the week has been fine. You know, the symptoms have, have died out. And then, again, your, your hard work last week was much appreciated. Everybody's support out there has been great. And, uh, man, I'm glad to be back because we have a shitload to talk about here. Definitely. And we'll get to 
all of the news that happened today, but we did have a game on Saturday too, right. which we will recap. Um, and let's start with that. The game was fairly, uh, I'll just keep it lighthearted, I guess, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't really, how do I say it? It kind of went how I expected the final score to go. And if you listen to my preview podcast, I did expect Carolina to keep it a little bit close. The way they kept it close um, will bring us to this discussion. But, I mean, it, it was your typical Panthers game in, in so many respects. You had the miscues offensively. Then you had um, the defense showing up for once, only in one half, albeit. And then right. uh, they found a way to cover the spread, which is what they've done as when they are um, – Underdogs, they are now, I believe, eight and three against the spread as underdogs. So, yeah. um, John, let let me get your first thought on just the game as a whole. And we're I'm gonna I have a few thoughts myself. Uh, I don't want to focus on any unit in particular, but just your overall impressions of going into Lambeau Field. The P- Packers are most likely going to be the number one seed. Share your thoughts. You know, I thought it was a good effort. I mean, you know, what else can can you say other than, you know, I, I talked with a couple of reporters, uh, one of whom was on site that, that we know well, Will Kunkel, uh, and he was texting me back and forth for the game, that, hey, you're about to see Carolina get smoked. And I'm saying, look, Will, I respect you, and I do. I respect the hell out of that guy in terms of his uh, work. But I just had a feeling in this game, you know, like I've had all year, that this team was built – well enough on both sides of the ball to keep it competitive. Now, to your point, Carolina did come out and, and really made some critical miscues early in this game. You know, obviously, we'll, we'll get to the fumble in a minute. But, uh, you know, they did not look good in the first half. You know, obviously, they come out on first downs and uh, have trouble sustaining getting yards. They were one of six on third down in the first half. Um, that was somewhat uncustomary of this offense. They, they tend to be pretty efficient in that area. Uh, they did run the ball fairly well in the first half. You know, they had 50 yards uh, rushing. And, uh, I mean, of course, Green Bay, to, to their credit, in the first half had a buck 59. So we saw some of the defensive run misfits come back into play. Uh, as, as far as how they defended Aaron Rodgers overall, you know, I've looked at some of the tape today. I thought they did a great job. I thought they did some really good things in terms of coverage. Uh, Rasul Douglas, who has had his share of struggles, uh, to say the least, I thought played much better in this game. Um, some of the other guys in the secondary, Dante Jackson, I thought played pretty well. Uh, Jeremy Chin continues to fly around and make plays from everywhere on the field. Um, and, you know, you continue to look at guys like Shaq Thompson in the middle, uh, you know, an unfortunate situation with the running game early, but in the second half, they were able to bottle some of that up. Brian Burns, a big impact game. I thought Derek Brown was huge. Billy, I, I know we have looked at that draft pick over and over, but I thought he really showed up very nicely in this game in terms of pass rush, in terms of getting some good pressure on the interior. Effie Obata, once again at the three technique, doing great work in terms of penetration. Um, but offensively, maybe we just have to get back to some of the miscues, the mistakes here. Again, Carolina's in a situation where they're driving down there in the first half. Uh, all of a sudden, they're at the goal line, and uh, Bridgewater tries to go. Drew Brees, take it high, reach it over. Uh, but he obviously was reluctant on many ways to do that. Uh, the, the coach, obviously, during halftime had said that this is not what we want to do. Uh, I thought that was interesting. The Matt Rule continues to kind of call him out. 
Uh, Teddy, you know, obviously thought to go high there. The design, according to the coach here, was to go low on the sneak. I still think handing the ball to Mike Davis on first down is a pretty decent idea from the goal line. But that's neither here nor there. It happened. It's over. It's sort of a microcosm of Teddy's year in a lot of ways. Um, but, yeah, I think defensively, whenever you can hold Aaron Rodgers to under 100 net passing yards, you're doing good things. So on the road against obviously what's looking to be the number one seed in the conference, it's another building block for Matt Rule. It's not a win. You want to win, obviously, from draft position, maybe not so much. But in terms of building some momentum for next year, uh, that's what I'm sure Matt would have loved to have had. But, you know, again, some of the play calls from Joe Brady I didn't like. Some of the execution from the quarterback I didn't like. Uh, DJ Moore was great once again. Robbie wasn't very involved early on. So there's a lot of question marks there. But overall, I thought it was a pretty good effort, Bill. I really did. Yeah, I would, I would 100% agree there. I, I did think the effort. I, I've never questioned this team's effort. I'm, I'm not going to. And they've right. kept it competitive all year. I mean, you're not seeing the same sort of – and I don't want to say last year's team quit, but there were certain – individuals who maybe weren't playing 100 percent sure no, no and totally. i think it's different this year but but I, I will get back to some of the points you made earlier and uh, uh, you know it's interesting because while the all 22 did come out actually yesterday night um so i had a chance this morning to watch some and i'm sure you did too but uh, right. for me uh, defensively that's where i always start um whenever i begin re-watching games and i agree Derek brown definitely had a positive game um you know, in the pass rush department, his uh, production was certainly rewarded. He's been getting a lot of um, pressures uh, the past few weeks. And, you know, the the main way he's generating a lot of pressures through his just sheer power and his bull rush. Uh, But I I did feel like he struggled at times against the run, uh, especially in that first half. And that, this isn't me singling him out because the entire defense was struggling against the run. I mean, Aaron Jones, did he have 100 yards in that first half? Because uh, they, uh, the, the team as a whole had a buck 59. I know yeah, Jones it, was a big part of that. Exactly. So I'm, I'm not really surprised. And again, run defense is a collective thing. So mm-hmm. um, I, I was certainly encouraged to see his um, pass rushing uh, production uh, get rewarded. But I, I do feel like some of the basics for this team need to also be harnessed. And, and, and by that, I mean the right. run defense has to get better. I mean, this is a, a part of the defense that they really went into this offseason um, attempting to improve. And, um, I mean, what you saw in that first half, it just can't happen. I mean, no. Rodgers wasn't even particularly, like, throwing the ball, like, well. Or I mean, I, he, he threw it fine. I'm just saying I don't think the pass offense was um, coming together. But – you give that offensive line and that offense that many huge holes um, and the linebackers taking poor angles. And then the guys on the perimeter, the safeties and the corners, not doing a good enough job of, um, you know, again, angles and holding the point of attack. Sure. It was a collective failure, but I I was hoping to see a little more from Derek Brown in that regard. Um, But I mean, to your final point, the Bridgewater thing, I mean, let's get into it now. Let's, This has been a situation where the head coach and the quarterback have been making barbs at each other publicly for the past few weeks. Yeah. I'm a little tired of it personally. I know that there are a lot of Teddy Bridgewater supporters. I have no idea what to think. Again, I'm with you. I think he's perfectly fine. He's competent. He showed some of his skills Mm. on Saturday night. 
Uh, but there were also moments where you saw his issues come into fruition. Um, before we get back into this game, I'm going to give you the floor and allow you to speak on this Teddy Bridgewater situation, everything that pertains to it, because I know that this is something that I personally wanted to hear from you, and I know that you want to get off your chest too. Well, I mean, you know, look, here's the deal. You know, you, Bridge, in terms of the fans, you know, look, I'm, I'm here to serve a wide net of people, including those who have defected to New England with Cam Newton, maybe not so much now. But part of my focus is to give a broad view and an honest view of what these players are doing. And, and I get a lot of feedback negatively, mostly via DM. And you just got to roll with it. That's part of it, Bill. You've been through this. But, but a lot of it gets a little vicious. You know, I've got one guy in particular that's uh, it's very personal with you and Bridgewater. I'm like, there is absolutely nothing personal about it. If you look at my timeline and you look at my analysis on Bridgewater dating back to when you and I, you and I were talking about this in the summer and the spring, some of the film I put out on Teddy, I spelled it out very clear as to what you were getting with this quarterback, a point guard, a distributor. You were getting, I hate the word game manager, but I mean, if that's what you want to say, go for it. You're not getting somebody who's going to dynamically impact coverages downfield. You're not going to get a lot of vertical stuff from Teddy. Now, is that a choice he makes? Is that a confidence issue? Is that the structure of the offense due to those perceived limitations? Maybe all of the above. That's who he is. It's okay. It's an Alex Smith approach. It's what you get. Now, he made a nice, I guess, boundary throw to DJ Moore. There were two guys on top of DJ. I, I credit DJ with that one. But overall, he was 3 of 12 on passes, Billy, between 10 and up to 20-plus yards at Green Bay. And that's just not good enough. You have to get better than 25%. And if you're going to throw that often, especially, past 10 yards, which to their credit, they tried, uh, you've got to connect more often. Just looking at the tape initially, uh, they have some good coverages. Green Bay, you know, Jair Alexander did a pretty good job, I thought, on Robbie Anderson by looking at it. But again, there were some opportunities once again, and Teddy did misfire. So there's that. Um, the, the biggest thing I have with, with, with the Bridgewater is, again, to your point, two weeks in a row now, we have talked about this coming into this season where this staff valued, they openly valued Bridgewater's, um, I, I guess, ability to play within structure, to, to, to meet Joe Brady uh, at the hip there. And these guys seem very well congruent in terms of how they're going to conduct their jobs together. Hell, Joe's even on the field now, Billy. And, and we're still having communication issues. Uh, Teddy's supposed to sneak it high or sneak it low, but he goes high. And the week before, you know, Matt comes out and says, that's not the type of football we want to play in that situation, meaning, you know, before the two-minute warning, the play where Teddy rushed it. And then Matt comes out and says, well, no, no, wait a minute. I, I, I think it's okay for Teddy to rush it and to try it, but it wasn't the play we wanted him to run. So, again, you have a hodgepodge of miscommunication between three critical people here, the head coach, the offensive coordinator, and the quarterback, the three of whom were tied at the hip to this whole thing back in the spring. And this is what Panthers fans were sold on and sold on at a pretty high rate by this team. This has nothing to do with Cam Newton. Cam has had a bad year passing. He's been rough. We're not talking about them. We're talking about what we were sold on with this quarterback. And to this point, not only in terms of the lack of opportunities uh, he has cashed in on late in games. We've seen it. The DJ Moore miss in, in Minnesota. Uh, we've seen the, the, the Denver bots drive there late. 
the, the short crossing route to Curtis Samuel that was thrown behind him when you're not even close to, you know, it's a one-yard drag route for crying out loud. Joe Brady deserves a lot of blame here too. It's not all on Bridgewater and it's still a young team. And I get they are not positioned for a serious playoff run yet. But at the end of the day, they have lost some games late because this quarterback, for all he's done in terms of catching up in the fourth quarter, when it comes down to that final drive, has not yet shown the ability to elevate to that next level. It's either checkdowns, it's either, you know, short drag stuff. Uh, I know he, you know, in the past couple of weeks, hey, he threw one deep to this Curtis in Minnesota. That was valiant. That was a hero ball type of play, as you've said, sort of a Jake DeLome thing. And Curtis came down. They tried it again uh, last week. Uh, at Green Bay, and, and Curtis couldn't come down. Might have been P.I., probably not. They usually don't call that. But again, my biggest thing is communication, Billy. That's what we were sold on, that this was going to be a great situation because Teddy and Joe were so much in sync. And so far, uh, not only are we not seeing it, we're seeing the head coach in the middle of games now to people like Aaron Andrews calling out his quarterback. You've heard, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to the Marty Herney stuff later, but Dave Tepper today was asked about it. He didn't give a ringing endorsement. He said, look, you've got to have a quarterback that can get you to the playoffs and beyond, so we're still evaluating. And uh, I just thought this was a really important stretch for Teddy these last six weeks. And so far, he's been, you know, his usual efficient self. Um, he's made things happen on the ground, too. I'll give him credit for that. But in terms of just consistency in the passing game, anything past five yards, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, and – I'm glad you brought up the first thing, and that's comparing him to Cam. I don't think you can separate the two conversations, I think. You can separate them without having to bring up another person. Um, and I also just want to bring up something. And, you know, people, they reference Bridgewater's metrics, which do look good on the surface. Nothing is too um, out of the ordinary. I mean, he's he's putting up decent production, and I, I actually think the credit for that should go to Joe Brady. Um, now, obviously, I do agree with your critique of Brady in certain situations the team is um, struggling to execute, but I think it's really unfortunate because in those situations, they are such a small sample of a larger body of work. Uh, however, they are becoming magnified because they happen in critical junctures of the game. Yeah. And, and so I do agree that the offensive coordinator, the head coach, the quarterback's coach, everyone deserves blame when it comes to this. And there is a contingent of people who think that we're being too hard on Teddy. Well, that's and my, we, just to interrupt you, that's my biggest thing with some exactly. folks. Exactly. Even occasionally you get some, some people who work in, in the media who, I'm not going to mention names, some friends with these people too, but I've had a couple people reach out and they're like, you know, you got to stop the slander and this and that. It's like, this is just, that's, that's childish talk. Let, let's talk like adults here. There's been no slander. You know, we, we've been very fair. Uh, I have at least, I know you have too, about analyzing this quarterback. $33 million guaranteed. You're, you're basically on the hook for two years. The third year, you've got an opportunity to get out of this deal. And look, I'm, I'm still not giving up hope that this guy can be a long-term starter in this league. I just don't know for what I'd like in terms of stylistic play from a quarterback, if he's the guy I'd want to count on for the next five, six years. I'm not seeing it. And for me to, to point that out, while also pointing out the positives, I think is more than fair. It's not about me, man. I, I Look, I've taken plenty of shit on Twitter over the years. It's fine. It's a sport at times. 
But I just want to let fans know out there who, who tend to disagree with my analysis, it is nothing personal about Bridgewater. I've chronicled his good side of his story, the comeback side of his story. I think it's a great guy in terms of uh, a locker room presence. Uh, nobody seems to dislike this guy. But again, it's all about results. And when you're talking about the lack of red zone production with these weapons, I don't, and McCaffrey's out, and that I understand that, but you still have DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, uh, a guy like Ian Thomas, who has shown he can produce, Robbie Anderson, uh, a, a big acquisition there. Um, you, you've got to be able to do more with those guys, and these receivers are so good vertically, Billy. It's frustrating that you can't have a quarterback, um, I, I guess, willing or able or both to make that a better focus point from from his perspective I've just I've struggled with this with Teddy and maybe you have a thought on this whether it's just he doesn't have the arm or doesn't trust the arm but he 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 pulls it down more than a lot of quarterbacks I've seen in the past to your point one more thing he's got I think 15 touchdowns passing this year and he's got 2,000 yard receivers he deserves some credit for that but Steve Berline had the same thing back in 99 with the (laughs) Panthers he had Jeffers and he had uh, Musin Muhammad and Wesley Walls, too, who produced like crazy. He had 36 passing touchdowns. So there's something missing here. Yeah, and uh, those were all good points, which I agree with. And I think the biggest thing about um, the people who claim that you and I are critical on Bridgewater is he, he's getting paid rightfully as a starting quarterback. Yes. Um, so his salary dictates that we're allowed to criticize him. This isn't any different than when we criticize – uh, any other player. I, I think the difference that you're saying that maybe we were too harsh on Kyle Allen and um, other people who walked in who were quarterbacks is Kyle, Kyle Allen was an undrafted free agent and there were there was a huge um, effort and propaganda by certain national outlets to oh, yes. you know prop him up as a starting quarterback. <laughs> no doubt. So that the reason and we rightfully were uh, vindicated on that Kyle Allen point. I mean. He played pretty poorly down the stretch and was eventually traded. You more so uh, than me. I, I, I liked Kyle a little more in the beginning. And I, you and I talked about it, and I started coming around on some of the film that you showed me. And then we saw it progress throughout the season. So I still like some of what Kyle brings to the table, but you're exactly right. A lot of this is perception and how it's framed by the media. Cam goes down early last year. Kyle steps in and, and rides a lot of good momentum with a, a defense who was getting after it and some good playmaking by a lot of good players. And he made some good throws too. And then he gets on a winning right. streak. And then they correlate wins, you know, the old quarterback win stat, which we all hate, um, that that becomes a, a comparative analysis piece that the national media starts to do against Cam Newton. And that was ridiculous. And that harbored a lot of resentment within this fan base, rightfully so. It wasn't Kyle's fault. It was the media's fault. But uh, to your point, yeah, you know, Bridgewater's making a handsome amount of money here. And I would expect this, the total totality of the results, particularly in key situations, to be better than this. But then again, Billy, I looked at the tape on Bridgewater from New Orleans. I looked at it all the way back to Minnesota. I didn't see anything that suggested to me there was going to be anything outstanding here. You were going to get a point guard distributing things in the intermediate short part of the field, and it was going to be a rack-heavy offense. And that's exactly what we've seen. 
You know, thanks to a lack of natural athleticism, commitment, or even overbearing sports parents, fewer than 1% of 1% of 1% of people will ever play professional football. But instead of entering the NFL, they've joined another league, the League of Football Watchers. This football season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day, no matter how you watch. Pepsi is the refreshment you need to power through any game day, because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game, it's made for those who watch it. Pepsi, made for football watching. Go to madeforfootballwatching.com to check out the latest football watching content from Pepsi. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I totally agree with you. So let's move on to other parts of this game. I mean, we think we did a good job of highlighting um, what happened on both sides of the ball. Yeah. The coaching decisions. All These right. are issues that I feel that Matt Rule should show growth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, he did a lot of – he made a lot of poor decisions earlier in the year, such as that fake punt in Tampa on fourth and one and letting a Jeremy yeah. Chin – um, whatever that was, that was and there, there just were some other um, situational aspects that I felt like he could have improved. Now he did show some, um, you know, coaching kind of growth. I mean, you know, the uh, forcing the Cardinals to burn a timeout when they were subbing players and having the players mm-hmm. go on really slow. That that was really cool. Oh yeah. Um, and at times he's been a little more um, progressive with his fourth down thinking. I just felt like this week a lot of things took a step back. And the one area that I'm going to highlight, and I'll I'll let you respond to it um, later, is, okay, here's the situation. You're down 21-10 to Aaron Rodgers, okay, in Lambeau Field. Uh You play to win. I mean, I I get it, okay? Now, coaches, me and, you know, my friends, we have Panthers plus eight and a half or whatever it is. I mean, we're we're, we just hope that the Panthers cover, okay? But you're on the field. You're – objective is to win the game fourth and goal from the four down 11 points in the fourth quarter you have to go for it yeah now i would be a little more reluctant in that situation if they didn't pick up 11 yards the previous play because if you remember third and goal they they that holding penalty pushing back to like the 15 yard line and then they gain 11 yards in that third down and make it fourth and goal from the four Right. They decided to kick a field goal there to make it an eight-point game. I just completely, like, it, it blows my mind what, what the thinking is in that situation. Because if you recall, a week prior, down eight points on fourth and goal from the five, they kick a field goal. And people on Twitter told me that the reason they kick the field goal is because they realized an eight-point lead um, isn't necessarily like a one-possession game, which, in some respects, I do agree with. Um, I was a little upset at that, but I, I did see – one of the fourth down models that said that uh, kicking it here would be uh, an okay decision. But in this situation, 21 and 10, fourth and goal from the four, you've made it this far. You've burned a lot of time. You can't be kicking field goal because what happened a few minutes after that? Rodgers and company, they drive down the field. They kick a long field goal. Mason Crosby is one of the best kickers in the NFL. Uh-huh. And he has a history of kicking in that stadium. He makes it 24-13. Yeah. 24-13. You have okay. You have that long throw to DJ Moore. I get it from an optic standpoint that you want to kick that field goal before the two minute warning to save you some time. I yeah. get it, but the win probability of all of those things aligning is just not the same as you scoring a touchdown and getting an onside kick, or even potentially stopping them. Uh-huh. And for them to kick it, they admitted defeat. 
to kick it before even the two-minute warning was the first down. I mean, it, wow. it didn't really sit right with me. And there were a lot of people, a lot of very happy gamblers who <laughs> are yeah. really thankful for Matt Rule's Christmas, early Christmas present. Yes. Um, but there were quite a few smart people who pointed out that this was a completely like illogical coaching decision on his part. And I would happen to agree with that. I did not like it one bit. Um, what did you think of those decisions? Well, let, let's take it back a few plays here, okay? So they start first and eight from the Green Bay eight. Um, Curtis, they, they get him involved at a back position again, and he only gets a yard, so I don't know if I like that call. And then Bridgewater is laid on a throw to Anderson in the corner. That could have been a touchdown, but it's not. He's a, even Kurt Warner, who you know was very complimentary of Teddy, pointed this out that the throw was late and it wasn't with a lot of authority. So again, you're talking about you know short windows being able to get that done. And Bridgewater once again, I think, proved that you know a very manageable throw he couldn't connect. The next play. He scrambles again. Teddy has scrambled a lot. A lot of this, I think, maybe is indecisiveness. Uh, some of these shorter routes getting clamped down on in the red zone. So he takes off, does his thing, fumbles. They recover it. We think it's a touchdown. But John Miller, you know, tackled somebody. So it's a holding. And, again, now we're back third and 17. And you're, you're in a position where you're, you're I guess, I, to me, uh, <laughs> at that point, I, I was thinking they were trying to get as close as they could back inside the five to go for it when, when they made that throw, when they made that play, because obviously they weren't designing that past the goal line. It was sort of a, you know, underneath throw to get something. And okay, you know, they're down to the four now. They've got a good shot to run a few different type of misdirection plays or something to score. So I agree with you. In that situation, uh, I, I probably would have gone for it. Now, now to get within a possession with, uh, you know, what, half the quarter left maybe? Yeah, sure. That, that's good strategy, too. But you have to ask yourself, too, what goes, what's goes into these decisions from a coach's perspective? Does it have anything to do with the fact that they don't trust this particular unit to get four yards right there? Maybe that's it. Maybe they're playing the odds and saying, you know what? We know, we just know with this defense ahead of us and with what we have with this quarterback and this condensed field, and without, you know, McCaffrey to pr maybe present a dynamic matchup in the passing game down there, we don't feel confident we can get four yards. So let's kick it because we know we got that in the bag, and let's trust a defense that has gotten off the field the last few series. Problem is, this defense to me is not the 2000 Ravens. We're not there yet. So you're banking on this defense to come up with another stellar three and out. And then, you know, as you mentioned, Green Bay goes down 10 plays, 42 yards, five minutes um, and, you know, they get a 51-yard field goal. And Mason Crosby, who rarely misses in that stadium, knocks it home. And so now you're in a situation where you're, you're having to play um, catch up. And they did, a, I, I thought, an interesting thing in terms of getting down there quickly, kicking the field goal to get it back within eight points. They made a really good stop on defense. Um, I, you know, some of the play calling from Green Bay's perspective throughout this game was a little bit conservative, I thought. But, yeah, that, it all goes back to that particular call. I agree. I think when you're on the road, um, you've got to be able to trust your offense, Billy, with a fourth and four from the, the four-yard line, fourth and goal, basically, to get those six points and presumably, I would think, eight points after that because then even if you give up the field goal after that, you still only need one score to win the ball game. So I, I didn't like that particular call. As far as after that, what was your thought on his decision 
meaning rules decision with, I, I don't know, just over two minutes to play to kick the field goal. Did you like that? No, I, I didn't. And, and that's, that's what I'm, I'm just baffled that they would think of something to do that in that situation. You're talking about after the DJ Moore catch, right? right. And the and the only reason I bring that up because I'm I'm thinking to myself, how <laughs> that you the the prevailing thought I I saw Joe Person post this that they should have taken a shot. Well, Teddy doesn't take those shots, so <laughs> you know why no. waste any more time with that? But to your point again, at some point they're going to have to take a deep shot. So why not do it there, right? I, I mean, yeah, but still. Okay, you have one timeout. You you have the two minute warning. Obviously, I'm I'm not denying any of that stuff exists. Just my whole thing in that situation is, you want to play it by the percentages. What makes sense from a win probability percentage? Right. I just I, you cannot convince me that kicking a field goal, get having Green Bay go three and out punt the ball with less than a minute to go and then having this offense go back all the way down the field, score a touchdown and then get a two point conversion makes the most sense. Right. The most sense in my, according even to the win probability model was to go down, score a touchdown. If you get a two point conversion, you get it. You don't get it, whatever. If it's like less than 140 left, then Yeah. yeah, you're a little hamstrung time wise, but there's still a, a higher probability that if you do all those things, the onside kick would present to you a better win probability than what they decide to go through. And just because it worked does not mean that it's the right option. Right. And yeah, it, it didn't work here. And here's why it's still a team that has such a thin margin for error. Now the three and out worked and, and you know, Brian Burns for all he's done well, had a free rush right in there. In terms of, you know, you could see him talk on the sidelines to watch the boot, watch the edge. And obviously, Burns was key on that, didn't bite. But that was pretty fundamental sack by Burns there. And I don't know if it was a great call by Matt LaFleur. But, but beyond that, here's what happens. they got a minute seven left. Green Bay punts. It's not a great punt. Farrell has a nice return. And they get a holding call. And Okay, so Sam Franklin gets a holding call. Now they're all the way back to the 20-yard line, where they were going to be at the 41. So that's 21 yards they lose. And then what happens on first down, Billy? You get bad protection right off the bat and an intentional grounding. So already there are 37 seconds. They're at their own 10, and the game's over at that point. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of hand-wringing about what decision was right and wrong. Um, I, I, I try to really look at it from both sides and say, okay, why would a coach make that decision? What's the thought process? Is there an analytics person up there relaying percentages to him or is it a gut feeling type of call on his end uh and is it a joe brady call not a matt rule call so there's a lot of dynamics i don't know entirely how they run their operation there but yeah this to me i I think it it worked out i guess because they got the ball back one more time but again it had to be perfect and when you get a holding call and a punt return and then an intentional grounding obviously it didn't work out perfect so uh, i just it's unfortunate. Um, I, I think they did a really good job defensively keeping themselves in that game. Uh, but again, uh, it, it just begs the question with this particular quarterback, how much of what they decide is based on a confidence level or lack of confidence level in terms of his ability or inability to produce in the red zone. That's, I think, what it comes down to in many ways. So final thoughts as we wrap up here. And this is a thing that's really going to determine 
the future for this head coach. And the reason he was hired, the reason everyone mentioned why they felt like Matt Rule was a perfect hire, and I was one of those people, he's going to act in a CEO manner. He's going to oversee the game. He's going to, in some respects, uh, be the game manager. Right. I mean, that's sort of what his role is. He's not a specialty defensive coordinator guy or offensive coordinator guy like you see in um, San Francisco with Shanahan or Los Angeles uh-huh. with McVay, or he's not a Fangio type either. Right. This can't happen again. No. Yeah, you no. agree with that, right? No, you're talking about I mean, you, miscommunication yeah, and bad. Yeah, of course. I mean, not all of it. I mean, you look – it, it it it's disappointing. I, I know it's year one. I know there were limited OTAs, uh, no OTAs really. There was a, a pretty much a, a, a non-traditional uh, training camp. It's his first year. But again, that's part of what you get when you hire an inexperienced NFL coach in a CEO type of role. And you have coordinators here who are still learning. I mean, Joe Brady's a very young guy. I like a lot of his ideas. I think he's a smart guy and got a good future here but he's not really ready for prime time in terms of the total package yet. He's learning. Uh, Phil Snow has made some strides. He's done some creative things at times, but again, you know, he's still learning this game too. So yeah, I mean, I would expect Matt rule in these situations, not only from, uh, you know, game management, uh, making sure that the quarterback, this veteran quarterback, again, that, that is, was highly regarded by Evan Cooper, who's a, a staffer for Carolina, then, you know, they, they made a big push for Teddy Bridgewater, and it wasn't cheap. Uh, now, the contract's not bad, but it wasn't cheap. You have to rely on this quarterback to be able to be as smart and as fundamentally sound as they claim he is. And I've, I've seen it on tape that he can be. But again, a lot of what he did in New Orleans was masked and was insulated by some exceptional coaching, great schematics, and a superb defense on the other side. And you just don't have that consistently here in Carolina, and you see some of that getting exposed. But, yeah, I think Matt Rule needs to make some better decisions at times, and I think he needs to be more consistent because you're getting into year two now, and then you'll be in year three, and there are no guarantees. I mean, they've won four games this year, Billy. They've been competitive. He's got his guys playing really hard. I like that. To your point, nobody's taking plays off, it looks like. The film looks good. There's a lot of hustle. Sometimes you're just not good enough. And when you're just not good enough, you can't lose in the margins on fundamentally fairly easy decisions. Um, the, like the, the play to Zilstra, the, the, the trick play call, things like that. They make it really hard sometimes when it doesn't have to be. So I think he's got to clean that up. Yeah, you know, just, just look at what they're doing in Tennessee. Variable took a more of a CEO role, but he's mastered it. I mean, their game yeah. management and decision-making – um, from the first second of the game all the way until um, the last second ticks off yeah. is perfect to a T. And look, I'm got to go burning timeouts too. It's got to stop. Yeah, it just everything. It just seems like th- this needs to pick up. Okay, I'm 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 giving this process, uh, and, and we'll get to this in a second here. I'm giving this process a three year grace period, and I think that's fair. Sure. Okay, I'm not like obviously. Most fans would expect playoffs every single year, but even if they go like eight and eight or seven, nine, whatever next year. Yeah. I just want to see the decision-making improve. And that starts on game days. Okay. It starts with fourth down decision-making that you're doing. You're going for in these situations, but you're also understanding how to manage the game, not using your timeouts. Like it, it just, there's so much of it. 
that they have to improve upon. <laughs> sure. I, I think three years is fair. Look, it took Ron that long to finally work out some of the cobwebs. You remember that? I mean, the first couple of years, uh, they, they had a similar roster structure in terms of their defense. And then year two was, was a bit of a mess too, in terms of the offense taking a step back. And then year three, things started clicking because I think Ron, you know, and in a lot of ways started making some better decisions and trusting himself a little more. The same goes for John Fox. It only took Foxy one year really to, to get that cleaned up. And then they moved into 2003 and made, again, they won a lot of close games, Billy, it's sort of the opposite, but some of these close wins are not by accident. You, you've got to have the, not only resolve from your players, but you've got to make good decisions late to be able to capitalize. And Fox and his staff with Dan Henning, with uh, Mike Turgovac, with, with a really good staff there, made some really good decisions in that season late in games, as well as Jake, who obviously threw his share of picks. But, you know, he did a good job late in games of not being afraid to take some chances. And I think this entire operation by year two, two and a half, three, needs to be poised to make a better run. because they're Yeah, I mean, just – But it's no accident. When you lose close games, it's really no accident. There's a reason for it. No, sure. And I think they probably could have won some of those close games if they understood how to manage a game a little better. Absolutely. I mean, just let's look at the last two 0-16 teams. The Detroit Lions, um, after they went 0-16, they took them three years playoffs. Right. Um, the Cleveland Browns, they went 0-16. They are maybe a game away from making the playoffs this year. Yep. So three years, I think, is fair. I mean, the other yeah, – I was going to mention the 49ers. It took them three years after Shanahan was hired to make the Super Bowl even. Well, and, and plus, too, we'll get to this also, but there, there, there's a bit of a discombobulated reset here with this franchise in terms of the hiring structure because you're, you're hiring a new head coach. You're keeping the general manager who was fired today on board, and, and now you're resetting that process again. So does that – prolong the rebuild I, I don't know i don't think so but again it's one more element where it's a little bit unconventional yeah and um i agree so let's i mean there's two more games left this year let's hope that um these type of situations can rectify itself i really want to see improvement in fourth down decision making i really want to see improvement in not burning your timeouts organization is very important and then finally just um, manage the entire game that comes what under... can they what can they what can they evaluate with Bridgewater that they have not already I you and I I think both know they're not probably not going to bench him unless he's hurt and I'm not suggesting they do but what more can they learn from Teddy that they don't already know I don't even know yeah. that's my <laughs> uh, whole point. I mean, it's it's probably the same reason why can't or Jared Stidham isn't starting for the Patriots it's... yeah they know what they I guess about. they I guess they realize Walker and Greer are are just not cutting it at practice. Right. Um which really shouldn't be a surprise and we'll dive back into this I'm sure later but uh the main news of the day uh Marty Herney 2.0 second <laughs> stint wow. has been fired. Um yeah. so this was a decision which I was not aware of. I mean there's certainly um a pro Marty Herney faction. Um, along with a, an anti-Marty Hurdy faction. Uh, and I'm just going to talk about what he did um, in his second stint here. I'm, I'm going to leave all the stuff that he did from 2002 to 2012 in the rearview mirror. That There doesn't need to be any type of um, comments or evaluation made on that. And if you want to bring it up, I'm certainly open to that. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm just going to focus on what he did um, after Jerry Richardson named him interim GM. 
and you know, for me, this was a decision that had to be made last year. I was very disappointed in, first of all, Jerry Richardson bringing him back. I did not think this would go well. And when he handed him that interim tag, I knew for a fact, I knew for an absolute fact that this guy would eventually become the GM. Yeah. And lo and behold, it felt um, that way. <laughs> there were so there were so many people telling me, no, this is just interim. This is just interim tag. And one of his biggest decisions from day one, who are you going to keep as a kicker? Graham Gano or Harrison Butker? Yeah. We all know how that went. Oh, man. And then, I mean, he did make a, a very prudent trade that offseason, and I gave him credit for it. I didn't think he would trade Kellen Benjamin, and I certainly didn't think he would be able to get a third-round pick for it. Yeah. So I did give him credit in that situation. So I don't want to just look at all the bad. No, nope. but there were certainly more bad than good this second time around. And everyone who brings up his draft picks realize something. Building an NFL roster is not just about the draft. And I can sit here and say that, yes, Marty Herney has picked good players, most of them in the first round. He has not picked good players in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round. Nope. Undrafted free agency, same thing, free agency. You build a team by searching every single avenue to – win games and i'm you know i said this to someone on twitter today and i'm curious about your thoughts the panthers they don't make that super bowl in 2015 without marty herney's players but they also don't make that super bowl if marty herney was still the gm in 2013 2014 2015 because i'm not trying to get anything dave gettleman did here but he understood that building the roster within the margins is just as important as picking a guy, you know, number one overall. And Marty Hurry never, he, that was an issue for him the first stint. It was an issue for him the second stint. And I mean, we can go through individual moves, but I don't feel like doing that. I just felt like for this franchise to progress, this move had to be done. And I just want to get your thoughts on that first, and then we'll get to the comments made by the owner afterwards. Yeah, I you know look, let's look back at his uh, you know recent history here. Of course, uh, I I spoke earlier to his long term you know contributions, and obviously the first decade was much better than the second. But let's just zone in on what you talked about. His last three years as full time GM: seven and nine, five and eleven, four and ten. Overall, one hundred six and one thirty two. Okay, um, prior to him coming back. Okay, let, let me just give you an idea. So we can go back a little bit in time here. They had a 12-4 and four season in 2008. They obviously lost a, a catastrophic game in the playoffs to Arizona and Kurt Warner. But after that, 8-8, eight and 2-14, eight, and 6-10, and 7-9. And, and then he's fired uh, right there. Obviously, the 7-9 and nine was on his watch. Brandon Bean took over after that. Uh, there's one that got away. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, you know, the, the, the track record following that was not necessarily great. You know, obviously he drafted Cam Newton. That's fine. I think that was a pretty conventional wisdom pick at that point. But, you know, yeah, to your point, some of the draft picks that we've looked at here over, over recent memory here, I mean, we look back at the, the Greg Little situation where he moves up to, you know, 37th to take Greg Little. And, you know, Greg, I, I wish him all the best, but he's played 14 career games now. He's had concussion issues. He's had leg issues. And it doesn't look like he's going to be a big part of what they're going to do moving forward. That's a second. It's another 
Jeff Ota situation. Jeff Ota situation, exactly. Ota, you know, at least Ota gave you one rock solid year, nearly pro. Yeah, actually, year. I, I I was a huge fan of Ota. I think when he was on the field, he yeah. was good. But beast, there's but so much better. more to scouting than just what you see on the field. Uh, you know, Will Greer, obviously, that uh, I think uh, Scott Turner had a huge hand in that as well as Norv. But, you know, Will Greer, we have not seen a lot from him at all. And then you've got a C.J. You know, Johnson Gardner who's doing great things, uh, who was drafted just behind him. Uh, you look at this draft, Jordan Scarlett's no longer with the team. Dennis Daly, he's been off and on. Terry Godwin was cut. Christian Miller's opted out. I still like Miller, but we haven't seen a lot there. Um, the draft before Galden, you've talked about that pick. That was brutal. Um, you know, third round. Uh, the jury's still out on Ian Thomas, but it looks increasingly like he's not – you know, quite getting it done like we had hoped. Andre Smith has moved on. Jermaine Carter showing some flashes. So overall, you know, you've got the the upper level draft picks. DJ Moore has been sensational, I think, uh, or at least very good, you could say. Brian Burns, I think, is going to be one of the premier edge guys in the league. Derek Brown, jury's still out. This particular draft, you know, Kenny Robinson, where is he? Bravian Roy doing okay, late round pick. Troy Pride, yeah, yeah, showing some struggles. Jeremy Chin, I think they got a home run there. YGM has been hurt, but he's been effective at times. But it, once again, to your point, I, I marveled the fact you and I had talked on a podcast even before we started our own, and I kept telling you, Billy, I, I, I boggles my mind that they cut him loose mid midway through 2012. And it was a pretty consensual, you know, view from out the, the entire, you know, reporter sphere out there that, you know, it was time for this to happen. We turn around and all of a sudden there's chaos going on in Carolina with Gettleman and then Marty's right back in the seat. And I think you and I both know at the time that this is going to be permanent. There's no way this is going to be interim. They brought a few what I consider to be token interviews in. Lake Dawson was a part of that. There were a few others, Martin Mayhew. But they they kept churning along, and obviously the Andrew Barry situation, where you know they had an opportunity. Of course, Cleveland's new GM, who uh, it's hard to get a full grade on him yet, but he's done some good things with some of the roster moves there and some of the analytics they're bringing there. Stefanski as well has done a great job coaching, but Andrew Barry was a guy that I believe they probably coveted, but there was a technicality with the GM title Marty had that Barry was not permitted to interview. And that was disappointing because I was really high on Andrew Barry. I think you might have been too. So, uh, again, the Tepper sort of plays both sides of the fence here. He could be cutthroat, but at the same time, he tends to waffle on some things. And this Herney decision, I really think it came down to, Billy, from talking to people in the know here, Tep wanted to spend a couple of years just focusing on things like soccer, focusing on the business end, restructuring that. And he wanted to put things on autopilot with the football to a certain degree. Bring yeah. in North Turner, let Ron finish out whatever he's finishing out, see if he can make one last run. Obviously, it looked good for a while until T.J. Watt blew things up with Cam's shoulder, and the defense fell apart in 2018. Uh, Eric Washington experience was terrible, and, and Marty oversaw all of that. So, again, he had a hand in some of this decline. Um, there was the I would, uh, I would argue he had a pretty big hand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just – just look at the situation that we're seeing unfold in Buffalo. Look at all those players that they brought from here and coaches. I should say Eric Washington coaches in Buffalo. Now I don't know if you realize that. Oh, I do. I do. So I just, I, I think there was just, I don't want to say the game has passed him by, but I will say that this front office is outdated. It is. And I'm, I'm appreciative 
that wow. this move was finally made. Um, however, it was long overdue. And you brought up the owner's name. And I want to get to this because this is another um, part of the show where I'm going to allow give you the floor because there were some comments made and people are going to take in them 50 different directions. <laughs> and you know what? That's what Look, happens when you make comments. I'm going to, oh, really. <laughs> I'm going to reference. I'm gonna. I'm gonna reference one of your tweets that I found very enlightening. You said, "I wasn't aware of David Tepper's vast football personnel valley experience." Buckle up, kids. This could be one hell of a ride. Yeah, man. I'm sorry for not being able to keep a straight face there, <laughs> but I feel like that tweet is a perfect, you know, starting point. To I mean, allow you to get everything Tepper said today off your chest because he said a lot, and I don't know if we're going to get into every single thing he said, but I want to just give you the floor because your relationship to him is very fascinating, and you have at it. Well, I have no relationship with him. I've never I've met him one time. He was very nice, but look, from an analysis standpoint, you know, we we continue to see an owner who. Now, obviously, he, he has some bit of hubris here in terms of how he speaks out, given the fact that as an owner so far, and I, again, I know people like to say, oh, you can't count anything before now because he's just now got his guys. That's bullshit. <laughs> he's, he's, been, he's been the owner of the team since before the 2018 season. So he's had an opportunity here to get things structured. Uh, I, I, I do find it interesting that he talked about, you know, he would be the tiebreaker and some of the decisions. I know Jonathan Jones was the first to point this out in the interview I believe he did with, uh, with, with Tepper, did with Darren Gann, who's now working for the team. And uh, I, I found that interesting. And then later, I, I, the Zoom presser, uh, of which I was not invited, it came out that, you know, Tep's like, okay, well, look, you know, I, I said tiebreaker, but I think that would be a really extreme situation. Well, here's the thing. When you say that to your in-house guy and it gets put in print, People like Jonathan Jones, who are very good at this, are going to point that out and say, this leads me to some questions here. And so I followed up with that, and I said, you know what? And I'm not trying to be a smartass, but I'm like, look, what qualifications does this individual have to be in a situation, other than having billions of dollars and owning the team, what are the qualifications in terms of being the tiebreaker with personnel decisions? They're not there. Can I actually, actually, before you go on, can can I actually say something about that? Please, yes. I do think in certain situations that the owner does need to be a tiebreaker, especially when it comes to off field and Jerry Richardson, Jerry Richardson, he had a lot of input into this, especially after, after the Greg Hardy fiasco. Right. So when it comes to that stuff, I I do actually think the owner, um, it's his football team. I'm not endorsing the owner to, you know, go draft seven criminals off the street. Um, so he, he, when it comes to the off-field stuff, I, I do think that it's fine for him to be in that situation. Now, I, I think he clarified it, but that's the only thing I'll say. No, sure, he did. He clear, I mean, and I pointed that out too. That you know later, you know that that a lot of what I say on Twitter is is based in satire. You got you got to put the filter on when you hear some of my comments because like, look, the comment right here on Panthers.com question with a possible top five pick in the 2021 draft on the horizon. Who would have the final say? And Tepper's response was, quote, I think it should be the GM with a lot of talk with the head coaches and some potentially input from me. Sometimes I may have to be a tiebreaker, but I think it should be collaborative. That's what was put out initially. 
So again, I think that's where a lot of us, and that's when I put my tweet on it. You know what? That doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me. I don't like that approach. But again, when he went on to clarify, it, it did sound like in an emergency situation, if we've got a guy who's got some major off-field issues, but that, I mean, that's, I think that's everywhere in the league. I think mo- most owners are going to be, you know, hey, if this guy has a huge criminal record or is a big character issue, I don't know. I mean, we all remember the story about Jerry Richardson really, really saying some nasty things about Cam Newton to Charlie Rose, that interview about tattoos and piercings and all that. And Jerry was a certain breed, man. He was a, he was a different cat, but uh, I don't, have a with don't bring a big cat again on that oh, interview. That man, was crazy. Brutal. I don't have a problem with Dave Tepper, you know, having some say in how he runs his team. I just, you know, again, I, I want to make sure that, that, he also said during the press conference, you know, I'm not interested in individual personnel decisions as much as I am the process. Well, as an analyst, I'm very interested in individual decisions. I'm, I'm critically interested in that. And more so, I'm interested in what the process looks like. And to this point, I still have not been given a definition as to what the process is. It's a process. It seems pretty vague. Pat Stewart's there. Um, Suleiman's there running the cap. Um, I think people pretty much know who's kind of doing what here, but there's still some, uh, some, some lack of clarity in terms of, okay, who is the, where's the chain of command? Who's in charge of what here? And, and where does Pat Stewart go from here? And I saw him even mention that I'd like to keep Pat Stewart around. Well, shit, I would hope so. You just hire the guy. So I would, I would think you would find Pat Stewart, some type of home in this. Um, it's, you know, Billy, honestly, uh, my, my, my issues with Tepper occasionally are just, he, he tends to say a lot. There's a lot of talk about a lot of things and that's fine. It's his team. He likes to hold court. I just want to make sure fans understand, don't allow yourselves to get in this trap where you, you, you start thinking, okay, it's acceptable every year or two to push the goalpost back a little bit in terms of expectations. It's not. This team should be positioned, as you said, by year three to be competitively in that playoff race, maybe sooner. I would argue year two, but you're going to go year three. I don't have a big problem with that, but let's not get into a decision where we have to continue to preach patience because this owner has decided to do things in my view, somewhat backwards in terms of the process. You know, Matt's talk, or uh, Dave's talked about you, you, it, you'd be, he said something along the lines of you'd be nuts not to have a uh, head coach and a GM, not in sync. Well, th- that's probably why you hire a GM before a coach. But <laughs> once again, I'm not making those billions and I'm making, I'm making those decisions. So I just thought yeah. it was interesting. And I, I thought, yeah, you know, yeah. it wasn't just me, some really good reporters out there looked at that comment and said, Hmm. And I, you know, also thought, you know, it was interesting that the, the, the owner went to the extent to, to not necessarily put any sort of uh, kibosh on the Teddy Bridgewater talk. He was pretty clear, you know, look, I, I don't endorse this guy right now. He's not getting it done. He didn't say that, but he said, you know what, you want your quarterback to be a playoff type of guy. And uh, I think that was a pretty, pretty damning statement. 2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. 
And now Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor the job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Right now, go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Sure. No, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you there. Uh, but I don't, th- obviously I agree that, and this is why I wanted Herney fired in 2000 or removed whatever um, when they removed Rivera is because you have a clean slate moving forward but I don't think it's um, uncommon for the coach to be hired first for a year then you bring in a new GM Um, the 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 Raiders Vegas Raiders they did the same thing John Gruden he went through his first year without um, with the GM that he did not hire Reggie McKenzie and then they removed McKenzie and brought in Mike Mayock Um, the, the same thing, um, with the Colts, Uh, obviously it was a different situation because, uh, they hired, uh, Chris Ballard first and Chuck Pagano was essentially like, um, a lame duck and then Pagano got fired and and, was supposed to go there. And then there was the whole issue with, uh, yeah. And then they brought in Frank Reich. Yeah. Whatever happened in that situation. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's certainly, uh, I mean, just from my own personal experience it seems like the best organizations um, whether you hire the coach first or the gms first whichever you hire them in the same off season so you have that um that collaboration and the vision and that that, just real quick that was my only point that you know that the the owner did bring up the point he he was very good you'd be nuts not to have the guys on the same page and then when he was speaking in those sort of very, you know, blunt certain terms, uh, it just reminded me that, hey, you know, you, you chose this circuitous route here. It was your decision to hold on to a Jerry Richardson leftover and to continue to move forward. And and Matt and Marty were, not Matt and Marty, but Dave and Marty were, were the traveling duo that made this Matt Rule hire happen. So, I mean, Marty was an integral part, I would assume, of, of, of that hiring process, at least on the surface he was. Now, if he was there as a traveling secretary, maybe I don't know how much input he had. I get the feeling just from talking to people, David is very heavy-handed in terms of uh, his influence on the football side, and I don't think that's going to go away. Um, but it, 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 it begs the question, too. I'm interested in your perspective on this. I think Matt has a lot of control here. I think his DNA is all over this roster. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, we talked to Jordan Rodriguez about this, you and I did, and I think she sort of highlighted this, that even Marty at some point just wanted to get back on the road and do some scouting. Well, obviously, that's going to have to go somewhere else and do that. But I, I think it's pretty clear that Matt, even though they've said today that Matt does not, Matt said himself he doesn't want to be a GM, it, it's all about cement. Nor should he. Nor should he. Yes, he has plenty to focus on. But my question to you is, what is? do you believe some of the better GM candidates out there would be reluctant to jump into the – the bromance between Tepper and, and, and rule. Do you, do you think it would, it feels like it'd be somewhat of a limited role for some of the, the, the candidates who I think would be the best qualified. I don't necessarily think so. Okay. And, and I'll give you a couple of reasons for that. You're not walking into a situation where 
uh, Matt Rule is going to be Bill Belichick or John Gruden even. Right. And I think in those situations, the um, the head coach is obviously ha- has a pretty huge uh, input. And I, don't get me wrong, I think Matt Rule is going to have plenty of input. He he's already making uh, game day decisions with respect to the fifty three man roster and um, who to keep and who to cut, all that stuff. Right. Um, so I think he has a, a decent amount of uh, power. Uh, but you know, as, as far as the off season direction and decision making when it comes to uh, picking what type of player, I do think a GM will have quite a bit of flexibility there. And I think Matt Rule is going to say, hey, th- let me just give you an exa- a couple of examples, okay? And we'll, we'll go through this. And I think this is you know, such a fascinating uh, discussion about team building. Matt Rule is going to say, hey, these are the parameters and the benchmarks for what type of players I need. Um, I'm looking for corners with this kind of arm length who run 40s um, at least as fast, and they have a broad jump of, um, you know, 34, 36 inch, I don't know, whatever, and three cone less than seven seconds, all that stuff. He gives them like a a benchmark of what players that he's looking for, whether it's in the draft or free agency. And Matt Rule is a Baylor guy, and he's saying, hey, man, I saw this guy from Texas. I was recruiting him, and this guy looks – fantastic the gm comes in and says you know he does look fantastic i agree but let me find you someone better and that's this player who plays in the pack 12 who runs just as fast who's matched up with some of the best receivers himself but you didn't get to watch him because he played late at night that type of situation you want to have your coach certainly dictating what type of players he wants but the gm should be the one pushing back and determining which players get selected Um, So that's where I feel like the difference is uh, between the two roles. Okay. And and I, and I don't know who the head coach or the, or excuse me, the, I don't know who the GM candidates will be. I've heard a few names thrown out there. I'm sure you have too. Uh, But that's why I feel like it will be uh, in some respects, a little bit of an attractive job. I'm not saying it's going to be attractive as um, some of the other jobs, but I, I do think it has its positives. Yeah, they, uh, Albert Breer had mentioned a name, uh, Adam Peters, who's the VP of uh, player personnel for the 49ers, uh, and he drew a connection, a nexus between Matt Rule and Peters from their time as a grad assistant at UCLA. So you're going to get some of that, the, some of the obvious connection guys. And Nick Casario's name has come up for the 5,000th time. I just I, – I, yeah, I don't see that one happening. I don't think that's happening. I've seen uh, – uh, who was it? Lake Dawson, who interviewed here before, I believe. His name has come up again. Uh, Jeff Ra- Ireland was one that yeah, Jonathan Jeff, Jones mentioned. Jeff Ireland's an interesting name. He spent time in Miami. He's worked under Parcells. He's worked under Sean Payton. Uh, obviously, there's a Joe Brady, Sean Payton connection there. So, I mean, there, there's more potential connections there. And I, I think, you know, maybe, I don't know, Pat Stewart, again, this is a guy who was hired as a as a personnel guy. I don't know if he'll have an opportunity to interview for for this role. I don't even know if it'll be called general manager. They may call it something else. They may just, it just depends on how they, they structure their front office. But yeah. I, I'm interested in, in the process. So you brought some great points there in terms of you, you have to have some pushback from that GM role in, in terms of being able to say to a coach, you know what? No, this is not what you need. You need this. There has to be good dialogue and hopefully everybody's egos are in a good place to be able to handle that. I, I don't think there's going to be a major problem there, but again, this is new for a lot of these guys. It's a new owner relatively new it's a new head coach 
and it'll likely be a, a new GM. So we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. And this is why I'm, I'm very curious about the Jeff Ireland um, situation. And the reason I mentioned that is because the Saints, they were uh, prior to Ireland's arrival. I think Ireland came in 2015, if I'm looking at his correct Wikipedia page correctly. Right. Um, he, he, you'll ask, ask any Dolphins fans and they have uh, bad memories of Jeff Ireland and rightfully so. But I mean, looking back, I think he was vindicated by the Ryan Tannehill selection. Um, yes. So, <laughs> so uh, Ireland, he came into the Saints in 2015. And th- this is a team that was struggling to draft players. Look how they uh, drafted Billy. Man. Just, I mean, you, you just have to go back to 2016. Rankins, Michael Thomas, Von Bell, and David Onyemeta. Those are – that's back to back to back. That was a hell of a draft. And then you look at 2017, which is probably the best draft in NFL history. Yeah. <laughs> Marcus <laughs> Lattimore, Ryan Ramchek, Marcus Williams, Alvin Kamara, Anzalone, and Trey and, Hendrickson. Hendrickson, right? Yep, absolutely. Are you kidding me? No, and then that's, they get, you know, obviously. How, the, how is that even, like, the, the, that the, it doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem possible. And, then, you know, obviously, you, you know, they, they, they've done some pretty good things in terms of the draft since then at times. But those were the two drafts, uh, the, 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 those two years. And I, I say this to people all the time. I'm glad you brought up Ireland because uh, uh, among all of the other reasons, you know, Drew Brees has declined. Yes, Michael Thomas is a sensational intermediate pass catcher. Yes, Alvin Kamara is tremendous. He was a part of one of those drafts. But, again, um, what has gotten them to this point of consistency has been the draft, Billy. No question. They have built that defense particularly – around the draft and they have so many guys I mean, Hendrickson is just an absolute monster Lattimore is a good corner Ramchak, you know on the on the offensive line Marcus Williams has played well uh, Anzalone has been a key contributor on special teams and on defense uh, you know Von Bell and Michael Thomas in the same draft uh, Hendrickson is probably the best edge rusher in the NFL this year probably yes you know for as much you as just, you watched that up, game yesterday yeah. He was pressuring Mahomes like nearly every drop back. He's had 19 sacks since he's come into the league in 2017. That's outstanding. Um, and, and, you know, again, it's you, – you, you're talking about a, a guy who, again, in Miami, they, I think there was a lot of strife in terms of uh, his relationship maybe with some of the coaching and some of the, the, the ownership group there. But there was some conflict there. And I've heard he could be an ornery guy to work with at times. But that's just, you know, the gossip rumor mill. In terms of results here lately in the draft, and that's what you're going to need somebody to specialize in now. Because, you know, for all the talk about Marty, that that was what, you know, this particular owner valued him as a draft analyst, as a draft evaluator. Now, you and I know a little better, obviously, but they're going to need somebody who has some good draft chops and can build. Again, I'm curious to see how this entire structure looks moving forward, not just the GM, but, you know, how does the underneath part of that look in terms of the college personnel department, the pro personnel department, the scouting, do we get changes there? Do we stay continuity wise? Because Marty was overseeing a lot of that. So do we see a wholesale, you know, bit of change from that end? I don't know. We'll have to see. It's interesting, man. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, We'll we'll keep close tabs on it, and we'll bring you updates as we go along. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I felt that Jeff Ireland was an interesting name, and I mean, you certainly want to build a front office around it. But and by no means, I think the Saints they, they take an approach um, towards the actual draft that I disagree with. A lot of trading up and a lot of um, different moves, like surrendering draft assets in the future years too, yep. which I vehemently disagree with. But the part they get right 
they know how to scout. They do. And I think that when he came in, something changed. I don't know what it was. Um, I mean, a couple of weeks time, we're going to you know, preview the Saints. Maybe we'll bring on another Saints writer to help us uh, decipher what um, what happened. But something just clicked for them when it came to scouting. And like I said, I don't agree with their approaches all the time, but um, they know how to scout players. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're going to see that too. One, and he's, he's a, he's a familiar name and I don't want it to be a gimmicky thing, but he, he, he's, he's a guy I knew pretty well. Cause uh, I had some family that knew him back in the mid two thousands and that'd be Dan Morgan. That's a guy I keep an eye on cause he's doing some good stuff on the player personnel side in Buffalo. Obviously, he has ties to this area. He knows uh, the, the Charlotte area well. He worked under John Schneider a little bit in, in Seattle, and I think that always benefits your development. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they reach out and try to get an interview with Dan Morgan. Just one more name to throw out there. Yeah, for sure. So you're going to see a lot of interviews and um, different names popping up here and there, and we'll try to keep you updated as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, we will have a preview for the Washington football team, most likely Wednesday yes, sir. Uh, or Thursday because of, uh, you know, some of the holidays are coming up, but mm-hmm. uh, be sure to check us out. Uh, John, is there anything else you want to plug before we sign off for the night? No, I just, uh, I don't want to enter a bad note here, but uh, some sad news uh, from the football world, Kevin Green, we're still getting some information on this, but he passed away today at 58 years old. Obviously, uh, was a Hall of Famer the linebacker, spent uh, some years in Carolina in their infancy, and uh, would, per, on a personal level, is one of my favorite guys to watch. I reached out to Luther Broughton today, who was a teammate of his. We've talked to Luther on our show, and Luther was just stunned. I've talked to a few of his teammates as well, and it was a really just a sobering way to end what was otherwise a very sort of dynamic day in terms of growth for the Panthers moving forward with Marty Herney uh, moving on and the team moving forward. So again, you'll be hearing some comments on that, but again, uh, thoughts and prayers to his family and, and, and everybody who's played with him. Obviously he was a, a very impactful guy for, for OG Panthers fans out there who know the history there. And now, you know, Sam Mills, along with Kevin Green, two guys who just passed away way too soon. So thoughts and prayers with his family. But uh, no, Billy, other than that, uh, you know, it's great to be back with you. Obviously COVID's kind of my rearview mirror and I appreciate your support on that end. And uh, looking forward to previewing, uh, you know, Ron Rivera. It's big return to Carolina, man. It's a re- revenge riverboat. We'll see how that looks. We're actually going to Washington, but I'll let that pass. Oh, it's in Washington. Well, who cares? <laughs> That's your neck of the woods. So maybe you'll, uh, maybe you're going to make the road trip for that one. You're going to go check it out. <laughs> no fans allowed. No fans allowed. Well, there you go. 2020 for you. Yeah. No, Billy, that's all I got, man. Uh, good show. And, uh, again, what, what a day in Carolina land. It's never quiet on men's streets. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us for another episode. Be sure to subscribe, listen, rate, review yes. if you're on iTunes. Um, we'll talk to you again very shortly. Thank you. See you, gang. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on all the action at Bet Online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team and player coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-on bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. 
Bet online, your online sports book experts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.